This is the Ed Milet Show. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. My guest today is somebody whose work I have been a fan of for years, and I have wanted to meet him. One of the great things about this show is I've met most of the people whose work has made the biggest impact on my life. And I got to tell you, this man's at the top of my list. His work hits you right between the eyes, and I would categorize it as brilliant. I just think the way he phrases things and comes right at you with truth is very unique. And it's he's also been on the list of most requested guests for quite a while. The book that first impacted me was Unf Yourself. I'll give you the clean version. And the book that he has out right now is Grow Up, Becoming the Parent Your Kids Deserve. And as I read this book, it wasn't just really about being a parent. It was actually really about being a human being, which makes you a better parent. So that if you're not a parent and you're listening to this, trust me, every minute of this will apply to you. And if you are a parent, there'll just be an added bonus because this man's work will impact how you're raising your children. Gary John Bishop, welcome to the show, brother. It's great to be with you. Thank you, brother. It's good to have you too. So I want to get, I read your stuff and like, I'm like, I got to read that again. Crap. It's like, it hits you, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to start out kind of because it leads to the parenting thing, even though I, I think the vast majority of it just applies to being human and not just being a parent, being a functional person. You said you live your adult life either as a reflection of your childhood or in reaction to it. I just think that's really a great place to start. What do you mean when you say that? I know what it means for me, but are we all sort of acting out of some place from our childhood every single day, even to this day? Yeah, I mean, if you if you were to look in any area of your life that doesn't work, there is some echo from your childhood playing out there. And it's not always obvious uh, because, you know, your childhood is, isn't necessarily what you remember. It's a lot of what you forget. And so you're shaped by it in ways that are, when you start to dig into it, become really surprising. It and I think that's, I think that's the fascinating part of it, at least for me. How'd that play out for you? I mean, I know you talked about this situation in the book. It struck me. I think you were four years old, and the fact that you remember this is compelling to me. But I think your parents were fighting. You're trying to get them to stop, and once you take it from there, I think this is just a good example of that. Well, I think. You know, look, if you ask your average person, tell me every moment of your life, they can't tell you, hmm. but they'll tell you some interest and bets. But, you know, for years and years, I, it, you know, I used to, used to kind of grind away at me, like, why, why do people remember that part and not all those other parts? And it wasn't until I started to get more deeper into my own development that I, that I started to see them like little milestones or incidents. And um, and so that that incident as a four year old was fascinating to me. Like I remember the feeling, I remember that experience. And in the book, I describe it. And the feeling for me in that moment was I had no power. I had no, I couldn't change it. I was so I was overcome with this. And you got to get for a little four year old. This is like wild, right? But yeah. my experience in that moment was like I've I'm weak. I can't I can't do it. I couldn't stop them from arguing or fighting. And um, that 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 moment isn't just a moment for a child. It's like a it's like a sea change hmm. in their experience of themselves. I'd never experienced myself that way before. It was new. And um and then so those little things just sink into the background hmm. and they become what you call ontological decisions. They become decisions that you have made now 
that you're going to have to now handle because they they sink into the background and basically become your truth, if you like. And that was certainly one of mine. That notion of your truth. That's why, by the way, I said, whether you have children or not, this is about being a functioning human to me. I've never read someone's work, I don't think, Gary, where the way you said it, I want to write down and remember it. Like, I, I find myself wanting to quote you more than most people. And here's something you said about that very thing on the past. This will rock a lot of you. And by the way, I agree with you after I read the book. You said, um, the past wins one way or the other. And then you went on to say at another point, you say, you are not shaped by the past itself. You're shaped by what you said about it. Meaning to some extent, this past thing is a little bit of an illusion to some extent. Am I right about that? Because I totally, completely in my 50s now, realize the profound truth in that. Right. So, like, like this is why this is why this book had to be written. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I couldn't mm-hmm. put my head on the pillow for another night with mm-hmm. uh, getting this book out there. Mm-hmm. Because I keep hearing all this stuff about generational chains and, you know, parents, oh, I'm going to break a generational chain. And I'm like, you are the generational chain. <laughs> Everything that falls out of your mouth, you are the generational chain. And if you want to break anything, it starts with you. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to people to see what, what we're trying to break with generational chains, if you like, is circumstances. So we're looking back at old circumstances and going, those circumstances are not going to happen again. Mm-hmm. What we fail to see is the mechanism that runs underneath those circumstances from that generation to this generation to the next generation. So you don't, you're not working on the chain, you're working on the oil, you know, you're you're making no effort at the chain. The chain itself continues because like, if you go back to that example I used in the book, when I was four years old, my parents had no sense that that's what was going on in my head. And I had no sense at four years old that I was making a life changing decision because you don't, you don't, we don't relate to ourselves at four that way. I'm playing with toys and I'm having a good time and I'm, you know, doing all the things that a four year old would do. But in that moment, that experience, boom, it hit me like a wall. Mm. And so as parents, this is what I wanted people to get from this book. Like you said, whether you're a parent or not, Mm. you have to know that there's, that that you had experiences in your childhood that you attached to various incidents and you live like it's about the incidents and it's not. It's about the experience that came out of it. It's the ontologic decision. It's whatever you decided, whatever you changed in that moment that, that compounded and lives on with you as an adult. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we've got our eye on all the, all the wrong things and I wanted people to start to see like, you have to look at your life, your childhood, your parents' life, their childhood. And if you have children, maybe you'll get a little insight onto what's actually going on with them, no matter how hard you think you might be trying to guide them another way. I told you, everybody. I'm telling you, his work hits you. He, By the way, the way he writes, too, he doesn't let you escape you. Every time you try to escape you, this guy's pulling you back to you. And I love that. It's like there's just no BS to this. And so I want to stay right on this incident, this incident when you were four and this absolute truth that you're talking about. I always say it's not the events of our life that define us. It's the meaning we attach to the event. 
And one of the difficult things when we're a child is we don't have the emotional makeup or experiences to attach. We're not really choosing our meaning when, when we're capable. We're choosing the meaning when we're incapable. And so do you then recommend somebody question their past? I know that you do, but I'm going to let you answer it. Do they question the past? And then are you having them evaluate an incident and then try to attach a new meaning to it so that they they behave differently in the current moment because they attach a different meaning to an event? Well, well, I, what I'd like people to see is that your mechanism for for adding to a situation exists to this day. Okay, so it still exists. What's a mechanism Except, mean to you? What do you mean by mechanism? So it's like your automatic wiring. Got like it. Your default is Heidegger, the German philosopher, he would have called it your default ways of being. Okay. So the ways that you are by default. And, you know, you, people don't wake up in the morning and decide to be themselves. They wake up and that self is there. Yes. Right? And it's, and it's a sad self. It's not a, it's not a malleable self. It's like this. That's me that I am. Now, now when if you if you hang around little ones long enough, especially like that age group, like two, three, four, there's no real self there. It's just like this big expression, right? Mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. there's no set way. But anybody who's a parent will tell you they literally watch their children become set, right? They literally watch them like the age of seven, age of twelve age of 14, and then suddenly they're just like that way, and they're always that way. <laughs> they're always, and, and they're always that way as a compensation to whatever they felt they had to overcome. That's why it's so testing, by the way, because, you know, like people can get through really, really turbulent times in their childhood and come out with a whole different thing mm-hmm. than somebody who went through a very similar experience. They come out with a whole different thing. Why? Because they don't come out of the experience. What they come out with is whatever they told themselves about it. Wow. So, and it becomes so tightly intertwined that whatever I told myself about it and the incident there's no distinction between those two for me as a human being. They're the same thing, right? So, again, for instance, in that moment, I'm four years old. I'm watching my parents argue. It's about me. I'm not observing that like this is about them. I'm observing that like this is about me. Like, I, I can't do some, some de- self-determination in that moment. What I want people to understand is if they look back in their own childhood what do you think? Those were just random moments and nothing came out of it? No, you're the living embodiment of what you decided in those moments. And by the way, when you make that kind of decision, that's why those memories are so fresh, so clear. The rest of your life is about those little memories getting reactivated, those same emotions coming up and getting applied to situations. As I like to say, you know, people live their lives in little vignettes of fighting the same battle over and over and over, and then they die. Hey guys, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. You know, in all of my businesses, and I've been blessed to have several of them, I've used Indeed now for a number of years. And the main reason I do it is, if you're like me, I don't want to waste a bunch of time interviewing people that aren't qualified for the positions that I have. It's one of the hardest jobs in the world, right? Or they are qualified, but they're not interested in making the move at the given time. And so with Indeed, you have a thing called Instant Match, where they match you with quality candidates within 24 hours. And you're in front of people that want the job, that are qualified for it, and that you probably want to hire. 
I wouldn't go anywhere else. They've delivered great candidates to multiple businesses that I have right now. So here's what's great. Listeners and viewers on my show, you get a $75 sponsored job credit right now to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MyLet. Just go to Indeed.com slash MyLet, which is M-Y-L-E-T-T, right now. And you can support our show by saying you heard about Indeed here. That would be great, by the way. Indeed.com slash MyLet. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Hey, guys, I want to talk to you about Shopify. You know, when I started the show, the furthest thing from my mind was doing online business. And now I can't imagine my life without it. So I love Shopify because they're a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. So whether you're in the startup phase where you're just launching your online store or you're at that really big business where you're like, hey, we just hit a million bucks in order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. They've helped me through every single stage. I wouldn't even know what to do without them. So whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered big time. They help turn browsers into buyers. They convert their checkouts 36% better than all the leading competitors. And I've used them for everything I do online. So every single thing you see that I market online, Shopify is somehow involved. I wouldn't even know what to do without them. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mylet, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mylet now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash mylet. Gary, you're um, you're on to such profound work here. As a friend, as a brother, I want to con- I want to encourage you to continue to dig deeper into this and that there's other books. I'm serious. I, I've done some work in this myself and started to write about it, and you're this is new and this is profound. And we'll talk about those three stages in a second. But it's why, by the way, a child can have the same exact two parents. One child takes different meanings from the situations they were raised in and they have two totally different lives. I'm, I'm raised by an alcoholic father. And uh, it ends up that all four of us turned out pretty darn okay. But usually you'll see one of the children goes on to be a high performer and the other one ends up being an alcoholic themselves. Same exact environment, same situations, different meanings were attached. And then right. that ba- that notion that you just said, brother, about that you're fighting the same battle over and over again with different circumstances, but the same battle. Listen to what he says in the book. I tell you guys, I don't ever quote books in interviews, Gary. I don't do this. But I want you to hear what he said here. Every day of your life, I wrote this down for me, bro, not for the interview. This is stuff for me, but I'm going to have it in the interview. Every day of your life, you find evidence for and then confirm in your crevices of your mind, quote, you. You talk like you, walk like you, think like you, and react like you. Every single day, you are justifying you. And one of the main ways you do it is by reaching back into your memories to satiate that beast. Therefore, the past isn't just the past as evidence for you being the character that you've become to this day. The past wins one way or the other. Brother, are you serious? That is so good. I just want you to elaborate on that a little bit. Well, well, you know, look, when I say people are being self-indulgent, right, it sounds kind of narcissistic, which is another word that I just can't stand. But anyway, hmm. but it sounds like it's just, you know, like self-indulgent. What I mean is we indulge self. That is, we get up every day and we respond to what it wants, mm. right? So we respond to its upsets and we respond to its desires and we respond to its quote unquote needs. So it's like 
it's it's I really invite people to get like who you are is more like a venue for something to show up. And what shows up every day are the same noises, and you just go along with it. You finally see that you're the venue in which all of this is happening. Mm-hmm. And and with with a little bit of like a shift, like just a little shift in the way you think, um, you could get a little bit more observant of that self, actually see what it wants to do and understand it in those terms. And I look at it more like, like it's just something I got to be responsible for rather than something I'm fighting against. Like either it's going to talk or I'm going to talk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard all the shit that it wants to say, you know, I'm <laughs> bored mm-hmm. by it now, you know. Stay on that. I, uh, man, bro, I, I got to tell you, it's one, one of these conversations I'll remember a long time. I often say, and if you don't mean it this way, correct me and say it your way. I often say just the awareness of the pattern of me being me it loses a lot of its power over me when I'm just in awareness. Oh, I'm doing that thing again. I'm doing me again. I'm doing that thing I do. And what you said yeah. is then that former you, the way you just said that, is not the voice that I can now choose the new voice. Is that what you mean by just being stepping back and getting above yourself a little bit and going, oh, I'm doing that thing I do again. I'm being me again. That awareness allows you to then make a conscious choice as to how to behave or change rather than to keep responding unconsciously. Right. So so awareness isn't a stage that you arrive at, right? Awareness is a constantly unfolding phenomenon like as you're as you're going through a day you get aware of one default response and shift in that moment you i mean i really believe it's not believe this i really want people to get this in that moment that shift that you make you have literally changed the trajectory of your life in a moment (laughs) now because your life would have kept going along that path and you just were like nope we're not doing that right so Imagine being someone who manages, I mean, to catch yourself a handful of times a day, just catching yourself about to go in a direction that you know you typically do. And you're like, you know what? Not today. I'm not doing that. Now, mm-hmm. when, when I wrote uh, my first book, uh, that was a nine-month, ten-month process of catching myself 30 times a day because – the self that I am had no interest in writing that book hmm. and had zero interest in you reading it because, you know, I'd be open to scrutiny and judgment and ridicule and la, 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 la. Hmm. So the kind of self that I had become was going to make that a long process that eventually I would give up on and just say it's not worthwhile. And I would tell myself some nonsense, like, oh, I'm going to go in another direction. I see something else I think would be more powerful than writing a book. And and all I did in that process was just catch, 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 catch. No, nope, not today I'm going to write. No, nope, not today I'm going to write. Hmm. And, um, and, and, and I wouldn't call it necessarily a struggle, but it was definitely like it was the first time I feel as if I'd really exercised that muscle and producing something that went beyond my wiring. I relate very deeply to that, very deeply. It was just the last four or five years for me that I've done that. One more thing on the past I want to cover, just because I want you to elaborate on it, because this stuff, you know, to be honest with you today, guys, you're listening to a conversation between he and I that I wanted to have. (laughs) And you said, you are not a direct product of your past. And while it's true, you were born thrown into an already existing conversation 
of family and values or morality, and so on. You are, in fact, a predictable, repetitive, emotional expression of what you have come to believe is true about all of that past. And no, what you've come to believe about it, this is not nece- this is not the same as actually what happened. What, so you have a right. are you saying you have a flawed recollection of the past? Because why is it, this matters as a parent because you're you're imprinting on your children all the time. It matters as a human yeah. being to then understand yeah. that imprinting that you are now reflexively unconsciously living through now. You have a terrible recollection of the past. Like terrible. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, no, I still remember the smell. Look, here's what neuroscience will tell you. Every time you recollect a memory, you don't recollect the memory. You recollect the last memory you had of that memory. Yes. And that's how your brain works. So now if you're someone in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, if you recollect a memory right now, you're recollecting a memory of 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 a memory all the way back. So all the times that you've recollected that memory, how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times down the line you are, that's how far you are away from that memory. And again, if you use that example, when I was a 40-year-old, the memory isn't so much about the parents. The memory is more like... For me in that moment, it was, I'm weak, but just as easily, by the way, mm-hmm. in that moment, a child might have said, my mother's weak or my father's weak and set themselves on that pathway. Therefore, through the rest of that childhood, it's about gathering evidence for, see, there he or she goes again. There they are again. There they are again. There they are again. That's why, that's why when people... You know, like you just gave an example earlier of a family of maybe three or four, mm-hmm. all have a different experience. And you shared that your father, you know, you're an alcoholic father. And, you know, I had one of those. I don't call him an alcoholic anymore, by the way. I call him, you know, somebody who drank to the degree that he couldn't manage his life anymore. Mm-hmm. That's that simple. Alcoholics, a whole world that I don't want to dwell in. Mm-hmm. But, but when I look at that childhood, you could get a child coming out of that childhood and saying, my father was selfish and I hated him. You have another child coming out of that family saying, I love my dad. Okay, so which one's the truth? Well, for the individual, they're both the truth, but they're not the truth. Yes, that's right. (laughs) The truth is he did what he did, and that's it. That's right. What's added to all of that is what people have to live with. Yep, guys, this is how you change your life, is these realizations. You're, you're You're a... accumulation of patterns of behaviors and thoughts and in order to change your life it requires evaluation of those things and the way that this is worded to me is is the most profound i have to i have to tell you that for me blame has been a major destroyer of my own life and you write pretty hardcore about blame in the book so once you have these memories by the way as a parent this stuff matters this thing he just said about repeating the memories, one thing I just want to say, that can happen at any age. I've had friends of mine that have gotten a divorce. We've all seen this before. You were you knew them when they were married. You knew them when they got divorced. And one of them has a repetitive version of their memory of a memory of a memory of a memory of a memory. And you see them 10 years later. And the other one has, then you have them get together and they go, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. And they both in their own world are right, except both of them are actually wrong. To your point is there was just a behavior that took place. So let's talk about blame. Oh boy, here we go. 
You say, blame creates a sort of safety. Blame is a catalyst for keeping you tied to what has been. Blame, to blame, is to perpetuate the past, to keep it going. And you're an effing blame machine. Ouch. So what do we yeah. do about that? And why does it matter? Um, but, you know, I kind of hung out with a whole notion of blame for a number of years. Like, it's it's a word that, by the way, as a culture now, it's it's a firestorm we're in when it comes to blame, mm-hmm. right? So I know people have got a lot of ideas about, you know, why society is the way that is. In my view, right, again, just some random Scottish guy, but <laughs> in my view, the, the propensity for blame is wildly out of control, mm-hmm. like wildly out of control. And we have fed that beast, by the way. We are, we are feeding it and eating from the same trough. Mm. And so you cannot, cannot experience true freedom from the past and keep your blame. You can't. Now, again, I know people who say, well, oh, no, no, that's not true. I mean, I'm free of that incident and that, 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 that. And I'll say, that's funny. Why are you bringing that up? <laughs> it's good. And they're bringing it up because they have to continue, continually remind themselves that they're over it or they're past it. Yeah. Now, I know this to be true. Not only this is, I'm not speaking from personal, just personal experience. In fact, my personal experience really only aligns with what I've discovered in, you know, years in coaching tens of thousands of people and going deep into the background of their lives. And when you go in there, you'll you'll find the same undercurrent just running through it time after time after time. And and how does it tie into the past? Well, it's quite a simple. If you had the, you know, we talked about my experience when I was a four-year-old. Imagine somebody else is a seven-year-old and their experience of an, of an incident or two incidents or four incidents with their father is that he doesn't love me. Mm-hmm. He only cares about himself. Mm-hmm. That gets married. That goes through life, gets married, and has children. What what gets married? I'm not loved, gets married. And I'm not loved, has children. And so what does it do? It does what it does what I'm not loved would do. Prove that it's not loved. It's not the opposite. It's not like, oh, you know, let me surround myself with love. No, I'm going to diminish the way that people love me. I'm going to make it hard for people to love me. I'm going to prove that that decision is true because I've developed some sort of persona or personality that allows me to grind up against it and prove it over time. So that blame actually has now become so embedded in me that I identify with a blame. And when I say I identify with it, I say the persona that I am identifies with that blame. Now, I've had people come to me and tell me, my life is miserable. This is terrible. My relationships don't work. And I'm coming with this and I'll say, okay, well, let's look at who you're blaming. And we'll dive in there and I'll say, yeah, you're blaming your father. You need to let him off the hook. And then they'll say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they'll literally argue for their misery. And then what they'll do is, there's got to be another way. And I say, there is no other way. This is that. This, you're at the source of something here. Mm-hmm. 
And and it's very, very testing for people. People fight for their misery. People fight for their right to hang on to their blame because they feel as if somehow letting go of that would maybe let somebody else off the hook. So they'd rather grind it out in their own toxicity than, than reach for freedom. I think you hit on it at another part in the book. I want to ask you this. I think they feel like they're letting go a part of themselves when they do that. It's become really? such a familiar part of me, that thing you called you, this blame, this pattern, this belief, whether I've overcome it or I haven't. I think that holding on to that, letting it go, you feel like a sense of loss of who you believe you are. It's part of your identity. It's part of how you get through life. It's part of how you get the emotions. This, we move in our lives towards what we're most familiar with. And even if we have emotions that aren't healthy, we become addicted to them. And we're going to find a way on a damn daily or weekly basis to get those emotions one way or the other. And you are not going to tell me I don't get to get my crack. You actually call blame in the book crack. It's the crack yeah, of emotions. Right. And I think you're on that's to something right. there because I actually think we become addicted to these emotions, even if they don't feel good anymore, because they're our version of crack. And we're not going to let go of them because then we lose part of ourself. There are, there are families who don't that no longer exist because they couldn't settle on who was to blame. <laughs> Period. It's a shame. That's, By that's the way, it, it, it's there are companies who no longer exist because in that company they couldn't figure out who was to blame. This addiction to blame, mm -hmm. most things that end, you, you, you've you nailed it in the book. You actually say something that I love because it helped it lose its power over me. You say, there is nothing remarkable about shame. It's it's like it's almost like this badge of honor that we shame ourselves with. There's nothing remarkable about shame, nothing extraordinary about guilt, and absolutely zero personal power in blame. But then you actually take it a step further and and that includes blaming yourself. Right. There's a lot of us right now that come to the show today listening and there's a little yeah, we blamed a lot of that's the, that's the addictive part. It's your fault. Yeah, but political right. does that very well. No, you should blame them. No, it's whichever party allows you to blame someone else for your life, you'll choose that one that feels more reasonable to you. That's that's right. that's a biggie. But there's also and I almost consider these like the good people. You know what I mean? Like to me like right. oh, like a weak person, you know, who I don't really care for, they blame other people. Almost to me like the good people blame themselves. You know what I mean? That's and that, but, but there's no more nobility in that, in your point in the book, either. But I almost, don't you feel that way? There's almost like a redemptive social quality, almost, or a morality to not blaming others, but blaming yourself. And then you just That's carry that crap. You, you carry that crap through your life the rest of your life. I blame myself for the failure of my marriage. I blame myself for the fact that I've gained weight. I blame myself. And there's, there's a difference between blame and ownership. And accountability, oh. right? There's a oh. big, there's a difference there. Just, I'd love for you to talk about that. So, hey guys, you know when I love technology and a great idea revolutionizes an old industry. And by the way, if there's an industry that needs a revolution, I think you'd agree with me. It's the healthcare industry. It's not easy to find good doctors. And by the way, good doctors that are in your area that also take your insurance. And that's why I love ZocDoc. They are revolutionizing the healthcare industry and the way you get access to doctors. ZocDoc, by the way, is Z-O-C-D-O-C. -O -C. Here's who they are. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Tons of different reviews on the doctors, and they're local to you. You can find out if they take your insurance. I just did it for a tear I had in my shoulder. One day later, I'm in the doctor's office getting some help, getting an order for an MRI. So go to ZocDoc.com slash mylet 
and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoccom slash mylet, ZocDoc.com slash mylet. If you've been listening or watching the show for a long time, you know what a big believer in NetSuite I am. I've been talking about them now for years. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors, which is why I've been using them now for five years myself. Over 37,000 other companies have as well. They've made the moves to do the math. Now you'll see profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mylet, netsuite.com slash mylet, M-Y-L-E-T-T, netsuite.com slash mylet. Well, I would, the guy who's flying my plane to, to LA, I, I wanted me fly it responsibly rather than he's to blame for it. <laughs> so there's two different pilots up front when that's happening, right? It's yeah. I want the guy who's just responsible and accountable and owns it and owns all of it, right? Mm. And, and can fly the plane with that ownership. Mm. Um, but but self-blame is the biggest get out of jail free card you can ever play yourself. Mm. And People don't like to hear that one, right? Because yeah. it's like, you don't know. It's like, <laughs> no, I do know. I actually do know. And I want you to understand, like, this is how you get off the hook for being on the hook for living a great life. You get to say, oh, well, you know, I'm still punishing myself. Okay. And it, it, anytime somebody gets himself to that point, like, there's one question you have to ask yourself. If you're blaming somebody else, what are you getting out of it? Yeah. Just really look, like, what are you getting out of it? And if you're blaming yourself, what are you getting out of it? What does it justify? What does it allow you to perpetuate? What does it allow you to keep doing in the name of what? And and you'll see it. Like, we we there's so little introspection with us at times because, I mean, there can be too much introspection. If you're if, it, if you're yeah. grinding a hole introspectively, then you know you got to you got to loosen that up a bit. But there is a balance. There's a nice balance where you can actually start to, you know, look a little bit, learn a little bit, step out into the new with what you've learned. But uh, but all too often we're just, I mean, this is why some things when I talk to people, they're shocked at what's coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, well, you know, you, sh you should be a little more shocked with, with what's going on in your head than, than what's coming out of my mouth because I'm just joining the dots together for you. You're the one who wrote this story. Yeah, that's why I said when I introduced you, brother, like he, you you don't let them escape themselves. And I think one of the reasons you don't is that you're trying not to escape yourself. And we haven't even talked about parenting yet, although all these things imprint on parenting. And so yeah. we, we ought to jump there for a second on why all this matters. But everybody, if you're now, we're 30% of the way through this interview or 50% of the way through. If you're not doing some of that self-reflection right now, please start. What are some of my patterns? What are what, what are the, some of the meanings I've taken away from my life? To your point, does it serve me to believe these things? Does it serve me to blame this person? Does it serve me to blame myself? 
Start to live more consciously rather than unconsciously. Start to evaluate and be aware. And the reason that it matters as a parent, as I often say, Gary, most things with our children are caught, not taught. They're catching things from us all the time. You make the yeah. point in the book that we should know, but we just forget all the time. And man, I wish I could get a do-over after reading your book, to be honest with you. But it's how much, as a parent, you're truly being observed by that child. Right. And I just think right. sometimes we're so busy in our own emotions and, and stress and making sure they get fed and off to school and they did their homework and these other things that we're not aware of their the subtle observances that they're making all the time about us. Right. And that's, that's actually part of the development of a human being. When, when at the beginning of your life, your very young life, you're a player, you're in it, right? But once you start to hit like 10, 11, 12, there's a shift and the shift is now I'm watching it. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of in it, but I'm watching it. And I'm watching the players that are in me more now than I ever watched them before. Mm -hmm. When you're young, you're just playing with them, right? So you're playing with your parents, you're playing with your brothers and sisters. You start to hit 10, 11, 12, and that's like I'm starting to watch them. And, you know, I say this to people all the time, you know, your children are onto you in the exact same way you are onto your parents. So whatever you started to see, and, that, and that's when that, you know, I talk about this in the book, like when this kind of world of cynicism starts to arise, there's a very natural disconnect that has to happen between children and parents. What parents fail to see is it's coming from the children. <laughs> 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 like they're disconnecting. And it's done over a period of years, but all it really is there to serve is that it justifies them forging ahead and living their own life. So in many cases, what they have to do, they have to do is justify that break. So they have to justify that break. And that's a, another big thing I wanted people to get. Again, looking at maybe back at your own childhood or your own teen years and saying, oh, yeah, I did go through something like that because people think it was circumstantial. People look back and say, well, my father lost his job or my mother lost their job and it was a tough time for the family and this is why this is happening. No, this was happening. Yeah. This was going to happen. Hmm. You just have to realize that it was going to happen. It might have happened in a volcano or it might have happened very smoothly, but it was going to happen and it's going to happen with your children. The exact, They're going to get through the exact same sort of spaces, the exact same sort of development. And they are literally going to justify not being around you. <laughs> you. You paint three. You paint three stages in the book, right? There's like zero to what four or six, then about right. to twelve. I think it's important that we, because you know what's in the book, and I know what's in the book, but they don't, and I want them to get the book. Right. So, I want you, if you don't mind, like paint those three stages really quickly. You just sort of describe them around them. Let's go right into them for a minute, so that when it's happening with your child, if you are a parent, this is a parent part of the interview for a minute here. What what those look like and why they're happening. I think it's really, really important. Well, again, you know, I take an ontological perspective. Yeah. So somebody who's a psychologist might take a different one, but, mm -hmm. but you know, I take an ontological perspective. Um, although I should add, I was interviewed recently by a psychologist and she felt as if it pretty much lines up with psychology. Good. But anyway, um, I, I, I describe them as three ways. I said, life comes at you in three ways. And when it comes at you, it 
it changes you. You become changed by that wave. And if, if you look at it in the beginning, like that first wave is when a child first really sees that they are a self, that they, they become self-aware. Like it, there's, they were more out here, if you like, more connected to life before that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly there's a big, massive sea change. Like, And again, it, I, I describe it in the book, I say life comes at you like a wave. And and again, this is why I talk about traumas because everybody's traumatized. Because how could you not be? <laughs> could you be born the way you're born and not be like jarred by this world? How could you yeah. just be like, nope, it's all good to me? <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> how could you not be jarred by it? Of course, you're going to be jarred by it. Um, the light, the noise, the sounds, the cultures, the whole, you know, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. But that first wave is when you get a sense of a self and it first really starts to get like, oh, like I'm here now. And the focus becomes on self, right? Mm-hmm. But as, but in those kind of years and, and, you're, and, the, and that young adult, as I like to call them, even though they might only be four or five or six or seven, it's actually starting to, we're starting to notice like, what we're not good at. So it's not even just like the realization itself. Um, that's often the time when people come to realizations like, you know, wow, I'm not as smart as those other kids. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not, I don't fit in as well as those other kids. Or mm-hmm. I don't. So we start to become more self-aware, more self-aware. And and it kind of leads us naturally into this next phase. Cause in that next phase, like we're becoming way more observational now. But way more observational of our parents, right? It's, it's, this is really starting to ramp up. So we see our parents do things and then say other things and then say things and do the opposite. Yeah. And we start to find the little cracks. We start to see these little shifts and changes in them. And it really is when that little empire starts to crumble because we don't relate to our mom or our dad or whoever's raising us in the same light we start to see them in a different light. Hmm. And and that's the beginning of the separation or the disconnect. Now, I've worked with parents in the past, and they can actually talk me through, like, I remember when that actually started. I remember the week that started. I remember, right. like, they were like this, right. and then they were like that. Yep. And I could never get them back to it. I could never get them back to the way they were. Yeah. It was like they just stepped over something, like they'd gone over a bridge and there was no going back. Hmm. And so that next wave is, I call it the wave of cynicism, because it really is where cynicism starts to kick in. And and I talk about this in the book, too. I want people to get how cynical we are, you know, like that lives on that same cynicism. But, but if you understand the development of human beings, to be cynical would be to kind of be active and on your feet and making sure you're never going to get duped and you're never going to get turned over. And, you know, like it makes cynicism make sense for people. You know, mm-hmm. people, I know a lot of positive folks are like, I'm not cynical. Positive people tend to be really cynical about negative people. I notice. Um, <laughs> so so good. <laughs> I'm, not, so good. I'm not positive across the board. So like good. I'm really positive, except that that jerk over there because he's really negative. <laughs> but anyway, as 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 that bleeds on in that final phase, and in that final phase, really is when that justification for separation starts to arise. Like we really start to see, like you know, I've had enough of this. It's like that break from the family unit has to happen. And again, sometimes those can happen inside of a massive upset. Sometimes those can can happen very, you know, very smoothly. Mm -hmm. 
But be left in no doubt, you know, like I had that realization myself when I was uh, deep into my 30s when I suddenly realized like the 3,000 mile difference between my, myself and my mother was in fact not an accident nor circumstantial. Mm. You, uh, you're making me literally think about my relationship with my parents when I went through those stages, and I can definitively see it with my own children. I mean, that's, those are, and your point in the book is those are natural stages. I've been saying right. lately in some of my speeches, though, as a parent, that I think one of the most insidious forms of child neglect going on in the world is a child being raised by a parent who is either not becoming more aware of their own patterns, pursuing their potential, or their dreams. It's one thing to, because we all figure our parents out, to your point. At some age, I figured out who my dad was and who my mom was. And it's one thing to say, sweetheart, you can be happy and have an amazing life. At some point, your child's going to look at you and go, then why aren't you, mama? Son, you can be president and walk in a room and make a difference in the world. Why aren't you, dad? At some point, there's an incongruency. And I don't think our children care about how much money we have, but I do think they want our parents to be happy and blissful and peaceful and joyous. And your kids know you. They're, they're, they see how you look at yourself in the rearview mirror when you're driving them to school every day. Not the face you put on when you get out of the car and walk into the office. They know. And they pick up those emotions. I don't think you always inherit all of your parents' emotional or your, their behaviors and everything, but I do think you pick up some of their emotional imprinting. And that's so important because in your work, you talk about, like, at the end of the day, if I'm a parent, what do I want my kid to leave my house with? And you name a couple things in the book, but like, what what do you feel like if I'm a parent and you were my son? By the time you leave me, what should I want you leaving me with? Um, the ability to love another. Hmm. Wow. You can't you can't love another. You're screwed in this world. Hmm. So you have to know how to love another, and you have to know what that looks like. You have to know what that feels like. You have to. You have to have experienced that for yourself. Hmm. And that's one of those things that your children are going to observe. They're going to watch how their dad did it or their mom did it. Like, how did they love another? And not how they loved them. How did they love another? And so those are the moments where as somebody's getting a little bit older, they're either going to replicate the way that their father loved or they're going to try and do something that's the opposite of that. So love is fundamental, right? I mean, I know we want to have tips and tricks and hacks and stuff they can use in life. Listen, uh, if they know how to love another, that's that'll go a long way to a happy life. What a great answer! The second thing that I that I get into is forgiveness, because you know, uh, I mean, there's a whole part in the, in the book about forgiveness and why it doesn't work. Right. But but when you take out blame. Forgiveness is easy. What does forgiveness give me? It gives me the ability to move on. Forgiveness gives me the ability to pivot and move. And 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 I would say that for me as a human being, I would say that's one of my superpowers. Mm-hmm. Now, forgiveness does not mean, yeah, you can just go ahead and do that again. No, sometimes it changes things, but I'm not going to hang on to it. Why? I don't have time. So I want my children to have that kind of freedom. I want them to see me forgiving another. I forgive them. It's okay. Because I know that in the next moment, I have the power to make change. But if I don't forgive, the only real change I can make is based on that lack of forgiveness. So that's like a grind. That's a negative energy. That's a lot of downdriven, you know, like that kind of energy. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness, freedom to pivot, move on, be powerful. Mm -hmm. 
And and another big thing, you know, I talk about authenticity in the book, but what I wanted people to get at the end of this was this thing called integrity. I wanted people to understand what integrity is. It's not morality. It is not like doing the right thing or something. That's not integrity, right? Why not? Because doing the right thing is subjective. So it's based on some code of morality or values. It's got nothing to do with integrity. In fact, if you have no integrity, but you're up to here with morality, your morality is not worth anything anyway because there's nothing holding it together. Integrity is what holds morality together. Morality without integrity is useless. Values without integrity is useless. Integrity exists on its own. So what's integrity for us? It's teaching yourself to honor yourself, to treat what you say and what you do like it actually matters. And to demonstrate that to your children, to say, you know what, I said I was going to do that, and I'm going to do it. And so it's not always saying to your children, you said you would do it, so you do it. It's that I said I would do it, and I'm going to do it. And I don't feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because I told myself I would, and that matters. And so if your children can pick that up, if your children can have the ability to love if your children have the ability to, to forgive and pivot and move, and if your children have the ability to no longer honor their negative feelings, to actually stay true to something else called their personal integrity, I would say they're pretty much equipped for anything that life might throw at them. Bro, it's so freaking good. <laughs> I look how your work, just so you know, you're about to be blown away by how familiar I am with your work, but um, all of your work flows together from your first book to this book. Because on the integrity right. line, I, I, this is, I have this written in my office, just so you know. I think this is out of unf yourself. I'm not positive. But you said, thoughts don't define you, actions do. And these are right. things that I think, is that is it from that book? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same yeah, point. I mean, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying something radically wildly new, like, you know, I mean, the Stoics were saying mm-hmm. you know, two thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, you know, I wrote a book called Love Unaft, okay? Yep. And I talked about why marriage is is screwed. And marriage is screwed because it's based on this thing called a vow. Mm-hmm. So I declare my vows and my partner will declare their vows and that's the thing why it's why it's why we're screwed in that whole ceremony it doesn't actually mean anything anymore is because we don't a vow isn't a thing in society anymore so a thousand years ago a vow was a big deal so what was a vow a vow was a contract that you made in language so like a like a solemn promise and so when people used to stand up and say i promise to love and honor and cherish you you are saying that to your community people they're now expecting you to live by your word right Mm -hmm. we don't live that way anymore we don't live by our word what do we live by how we feel and what's the problem in that how we feel is always based in the past so if i keep going by how i swear i don't i don't subscribe to all this did you go with your gut i'm like i hope not because i could change that with pizza so, you know, my my whole approach is what will keep you true 
is what exists outside of you. If you can honor something that's outside of you, something that compels you, something that's that that's greater than the sum of these parts, then you'll learn the ability to go beyond self. And beyond self is beyond fear, is beyond the past, is beyond self-imposed limitations, is beyond self-limiting beliefs, is beyond all of those things. And then you're playing this game of like, what do I need to get out of the way to make sure I deliver? And that, to me, that's power. Bro, that is unbelievably well said. I don't want to stop. We're going to go 10 more minutes. Sorry. It's too good. Uh, it's too damn good. Because um, I want all your work to be merged together. I actually say a lot of times, I think the quality of your life is in direct proportion to your ability to embrace and deal with uncertainty. And one of the other things we do, I think, you tell me, you in, in, in uh, NF Yourself, you said, make friends with uncertainty. And I think it's from that book. And And one of the reasons I think we establish these stories in our life is they're predictable and certain. And I, I wrote a book last year and a lot of that book was about my dad's alcoholism. And I, by the way, I agree with you on that label. It's one of the things I have a challenge with. And even in AA is, and my dad was in AA and it worked for him, but is this label of, of that term and that identity. But having said all that, that's a whole other conversation. Um, I found myself after a while on that book tour n- not enjoying talking about it. And it was just like, because right. it's not real. It, I did it for the purposes of helping other people. But the truth is, many, many years ago, I stopped telling that story. And I think that's why I've had right. a somewhat relatively productive and somewhat happy life is like, I'm not addicted right. to the certainty and the predictability of my stories. And even as a guy who, like, I don't know that I'm naturally a big risk taker. Because I grew up with so much risk around me, I think there's this little bit of me that's like tries to avoid that. But as I've embraced more right. uncertainty in my life, it's actually accepted. It's helped me accept that's what life is. Let me give an example. And I'll let you respond. As we're recording this, two days ago, I had a lady on my show who's one of my dear friends just a few weeks ago, who had stage four colon cancer. She's 34 years old. And she passed away two days ago. And there's no way a year ago you could have told her that in any way, shape, or form that was going to be a part of her life. But it was. Life is uncertain. And our, I think our, ability, our, our false notion that I'm going to be able to control everything in my life and that it's predictable and certain. And if I tell myself these stories over and over again, if I stay safe and don't take risks and don't get vulnerable or authentic with people, if I just stay in this space, I'll have certainty. And I think certainty is like the greatest lie of our lives. Nothing is certain, and it's a fallacy that you think you're embracing it anyway. So to step into the uncertain, to me, is to actually step into life in general. Do you agree with that? And what's your version of what I just said? Well, I mean, you're right there. You're right. You're you're right there. I mean, there is no certainty. It doesn't exist. It's a human construct. Right. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to make it certain. Mm -hmm. So when people say, you know, step into the uncertainty, you know, okay, that's fine to say that, but you need to realize you're in the uncertainty. You don't have to step, you're in it. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is trying to make sense of it because we feel as if, I mean, look, we we are, and I did talk about this in the first book, you know, like we're consumed by protecting. So we want to protect, want to protect the weather. 
want to protect the, the the financial markets. We want to protect our relationship. We want to protect the lives of our children, right? We're literally looking at our child, make a mistake. And we, we're already like seeing that, taking them straight to the state penitentiary by the time they're 18, right? We're already seeing a straight line between like bunking off at school one day when they were 12 and like, oh, you're going to the state pen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already predicting futures and we're predicting futures based on the past. So this is why when I talk to people, I say, look, you don't live like anything's possible. You live like some things are possible given what I know. And and that's kind of like the blinkered view that we have. But the alternative to that is to expose yourself to the chaos, right? And, And the unpredictability of uncertainty. And this is what I wanted people to get grounded in, in that book and when I wrote Wise AF about later, I wanted people to get, you thrive in that environment. You're brilliant in unpredictability. You are actually creative and masterful in unpredictability. How do I know that? Look back in your life. Look at those moments when you get sideswiped and look what you did. Look how you responded. Look what you created. Look how you stepped up. People are people do their best thinking in uncertainty. People do their their, their most inventive and creative work in uncertainty and in predictability, they just get grounded at in the repetitive patterns. That's why I say people would rather have the misery of a predictable life than they than actually wake up to the idea that they could have way more than that, but then they're faced with, well, what about this and what about that? And then I'd have to deal with this. And, it, and I'm like, yeah, but that's the game. So to me, it's it's more like exposing yourself to how unpredictable it is, and then giving yourself the freedom to go perform there. So good. Brother, I'm just in sheath. I just, <laughs> I'm just enjoying this so much. Um, gosh, man. Yeah, there's been several moments in this interview. It's like, I wish I could just go rewind and hear you say that again and then, and then talk a little bit more about it. Let me ask you one more thing, if I could. And again, I've never had someone's work, I, I think, that I wrote down more of what they said than the way you write and express yourself. So the last thing, like this is just like life advice, but it's also in a parenting book, too. It's both. It's in a parenting book and a life book. You said, uh, man, and I need to do a better job of this when I read this to you. I do. You said, speak like your words mean everything. Listen without making it mean anything. What do you mean when you say that? Like, what great life advice? I know what it means to me when I read it, but what did it mean to you when you wrote it? Um, there's a big... Look, cultures develop and um, continue to develop in the articulation of new conversations. So if you want to know, if you want to know how a society changes... What changes is what they talk about, right? So if you go back through time, you'll see societies talking about new things. Mm. And as they talk about those new things, they're literally having to give new language to some of those new things because it's not like those things didn't exist before. We just had no language for that, right? Mm. So we had no language for it. So in society now, there's a lot of talk about how you speak, what you're saying, when you're saying it, that, that, right? People are going on, they're calling it political correctness. 
okay, fine, but that's an articulation of a language that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Okay. Mm. So so language is evolving and as that language in those conversations are evolving, society is evolving. But it's but all we want to talk about is what people are saying. And they're asking people to be responsible for what they're saying. And I say, great, I think that's fair enough. But you need to be responsible for the way in which you listen. You need to be responsible for the way things are landing for you. And rather than putting that on somebody else, you might want to do a little bit of work on yourself and realize like, hey, this is an old thing for me that's coming up. This person's talking, saying whatever they want to say, and I'm getting hooked. And I'm getting hooked by something of my own making. But we don't. We are all too often. And, and it's two ways. It's not one or the other. It's both. Can I, be, can I be responsible for the way that this might land? But at the same time, can I be responsible for what I'm listening to? And am I, am I making sure that this goes in the right spot, right? Mm. Rather than just hooked by an old trigger or pattern from my own past. That should be played on like every nightly news broadcast for the next 16 years, every single damn night, what you just said right there. Um, I just want to first say something to you. Thank you for this today, and thank you for your work. It's improved my life, Gary. Your work has improved my life. Thank you. And and today's conversation, bro, is one for the ages. Look, I've done a lot of these, okay, a lot of them. This is one for the ages, and I'm extremely grateful to have been a part of it. And uh, you have an open invite. The only thing is you need to sit in front of me next time. We're not doing this Zoom crap again. We're going to be together. Is that fair? Oh, sure. I'll do it. I'll definitely do it. I would love that. And everybody, listen, go get, grow up, becoming the parent your kids deserve. In fact, let me just say this to you. If he wrote it, get it. If he wrote it, get it. You've never heard me quote more people, more lines from any person's book ever on the show because I write them down and I keep them. And I'll keep this conversation close to my heart and my mind for a long time too, Gary. So thank you again, bro. Very, very much. Uh, yeah, Every, everybody go grab the power of one more my book as well while you're grabbing his and at the same time uh, share this episode i probably don't even need to ask you to do that today i'm pretty sure you're sharing it so anybody you care about anybody's life you want to make better anybody you want to make a better parent or a better human being whether they have kids or not they need to hear this show today all right everybody god bless you max out your life this is the ed Milet show